5, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to talk to you tonight on Jesus, our righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, said, For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. You know, righteousness is something that, um, uh, that God revealed all throughout the Old Testament that he was going to bring to pass on behalf of his people. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, we'll give you a couple of examples. Isaiah 54, verse 17, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. What does that verse of Scripture um, indicate that God wants us to have? It says, our righteousness, our righteousness is of him. We know that was fulfilled by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But notice the first part of the verse. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that rises up in judgment against thee thou shalt condemn. Would that not be identified with a place of authority? Our righteousness is supposed to provide for us victory in every respect. Now, there are other places in the Old Testament, too. I'll read just a couple real quickly. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God speaking of the work that would uh, produce righteousness for us. Verse 25, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. A new heart also I will give you. And a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of the flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will, heart of flesh means a tender heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. Now that verse doesn't specifically talk about righteousness, but it talks about being cleansed. It talks about enjoying a relationship with God because of the position that he puts us in. And, of course, that's because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as we referred to before. Let me read to you another one, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Well, it's talking again about being uh, cleansed. It's talking about being redeemed from the bondage of sin. It's talking about a change, whereas they had the law of God written on tablets that they were commanded to keep and, and um, uh, strictly warned about disobedience and so forth. But it's talking about coming to a place that we know that righteousness is the only thing that can bring us to that place, that place of abiding in him. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 7. While you're turning there, I'll make a couple of comments. It seems to me that the number one thing, we all know that Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. And even greater the works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. I think a lot of times we identify or define works as being miracles and healings and the stuff that Jesus did. And certainly that would be included in anything that Jesus said that he would want us to continue to do. Let me say it a different way. It would be included or be a part of anything that God does through the church. No matter whether it's during the time that in the early days of the church or through the modern age of the church. Jesus certainly expects us to do the same things that he did. But he also gave us commandments related to character and not just miracles. Jesus gave us a new commandment one that superseded all the Old Testament commandments. He said, a new commandment I give unto you, John 13, 34, 
that you love one another, even as I have loved you. By this, walking in love, shall all men know that you're my disciples. We also know that the New Testament provides for us in Galatians chapter 5, a list of nine things, nine character traits that we're to adopt and develop that become ours in a measure at the new birth. So we know God wants us to provide matching character with Jesus. We know that the Bible wants us to do the same works, ministry to other type works, healings and so forth. We know that God wants all of those things done. But if righteousness, or maybe I should say the lack of understanding of righteousness, seems to me to be the one thing that, co- that stops people from doing what God wants them to do or entering into the place with him that he's provided. As such, Paul gives us a record in Romans chapter 7, and he concludes in chapter 8. He gives us a record of the struggle that he had with walking out the righteousness that God had made unto him. If you look at the book of Romans overall, the 15th chapter of Romans, Paul says that I tried to come to you several times, but Satan hindered me from getting there. He identifies that he's never seen the face of the church at Rome. He hasn't been to Rome. Um, Church historical documents indicate to us that the people that started the church in Rome, probably Aquila and Priscilla, but whoever the, the people, the originators, the founders of the church at Rome were part of Paul's ministry. And as such, the church at Rome is made up of his spiritual grandchildren, if that makes any sense. He didn't have a direct work in starting that church or the churches in Rome. There were a number of them that he identifies when he makes his final greetings and salutations and so forth. But apparently the churches that were started in Rome were started from people that had learned, maybe been saved under Paul's ministry, learned his doctrine and so forth. Now, again, this 15th chapter of Rome of uh, the book of Romans tells us that Paul's plan is to see them. He said, I'll see you when I pass through on my journey to Spain. Well, that provides us some timelines. Because we know that the book of Acts covers or ends, I should say, around A.D. 61 or 62. And the last thing that it says about Paul's and the last trip that Paul made, you understand, you remember, I'm sure, that he was taken under bonds unto, uh, under the Romans to stand before Caesar. The book of Acts concludes with Paul being free to go about his business and do whatever he wanted to do in Rome for the space of about two years. Well, it wouldn't make sense for him to be in Rome for two years and not meet these people. It wouldn't make sense for Paul to be in Rome for those two years, the last two years that the book of Acts covers, not the last two years of Paul's life by any means. But you'd have to expect, at least I would, I would expect that if Paul is going to have freedom of movement in Rome, then he's certainly going to make contact with the Roman churches. That just makes sense, doesn't it? So we know, therefore, that when Paul talks about going, stopping in Rome on his way to Spain, this is before the events of Acts chapter 19. This letter was written before the events of Acts chapter 19, where Paul purposed in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must see Rome. So the way things turned out were a lot different than Paul wrote to this church about what his plans were and when he thought he was going to see them and so forth. Now, here's the significance of that for me. The book of Romans covers Paul's doctrine, covers more aspects of Paul's doctrine than any other letter we have. And it seems like, at at least, again, at least to me, it seems like he's describing or, or writing things to them, covering all the things that he would have taught if he was there starting the churches in person. And notice one of the things that he identifies He identifies the personal struggle, the individual struggle between your heart and your flesh. He talks a great deal, more than any other letter he ever wrote. As a matter of fact, there's nothing else in the Bible, in the New Testament, 
that Paul identifies his personal struggles in this way. He talks about some of the trouble that he found himself in. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he makes a big long list of things that uh, happened because of the persecution that came against him. So that he was open about. But this is the only place that he talks about his own personal struggle. The character struggle. Not the ministry struggle, but the character struggle. And let's start in verse 14. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. He said, for we know that the law is spiritual. Well, the law would be spiritual. It was given by God. But I am carnal, sold under sin. Now he's talking about before the new birth. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Now, Paul is talking about the first thing that he mentions here in these scriptures as we're uh, referring to them. The first thing he identifies is that he's not in a position or wasn't at some point in his life. I don't believe he's writing this as it's going on. I believe this is part of what he learned earlier on in his ministry. The book of Romans is probably written about 55, 56 AD. Five years before, five, maybe six years before the ending of the book of Acts that describes the two years that he spent in Rome under house arrest or, or with some degree of freedom. Nobody's stopping him from doing or going wherever he wanted to do. And now here Paul is telling about some point in time in his ministry where he has to deal with the issue. And folks, everybody does. Or let me say everybody should. I'm not sure everybody does. Some people seem oblivious to these things or maybe they've just given up or whatever. I don't know. But if you're going to grow and develop in the things of God, you're going to have to conquer, come to a place of peace relative to this issue. Paul's saying, my body's doing things my spirit doesn't want it to do. And the things my spirit tries to make my body do, it won't do. Well, what does that mean? Paul certainly knows the book, uh, the letter, the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, or what we know of as 2 Corinthians, identifies... Paul's understanding that Christ was made righteousness for each and every one of us. That righteousness is the change that occurs to us or in us when we make Jesus our Lord and Savior. Paul knows that the very thing that's called eternal life is the impartation of righteousness or right standing with God. He knows this. He's well aware of that. Yet... There were times where he could not control his body. There were times where his body, the sin in the flesh, led him into doing things that his spirit resented. How do you reconcile those things? Most Christians don't, seems to me. Most Christians don't reconcile that. And because they don't reconcile it, they're always in a place where, they, where, where condemnation is coming against them. They think it's their heart condemning them, but it's not. It could be the devil's condemnation, and of course, he's always there to tell us what a great job we're doing. But it could also just be a lack of understanding. A lack of understanding or a lack of knowledge of what righteousness is and what it produces in us. So Paul talks about his own struggle. Folks, when I was in Bible school uh, in 1980... There was a, uh, when you're enrolled in school, signed up and, and uh, enrolled in, in class, the, the Rhema curriculum, I mean, they give you a big stack of books. And those books are going to be the textbooks for the classes that we have. And one of those books was titled Romans, verse by verse. I don't remember what class we ever used that in. I don't remember ever using it in a class. We certainly didn't have a class called the Book of Romans. And so I'm not sure, I don't have a clear recollection of why I was reading this book. It's a great big old thick book, and I can't imagine that I'd just taken it on and said, gee, I'm going to read this this week. It wouldn't be the kind of thing that I would be drawn to. But for some reason, I started reading that book. And it was the book. And the things that were contained in that book, it was by a man named Newell. I don't remember his first name, but I remember seeing his name on the, the spine of the book. And this is one of the things, the, the chapters that he wrote on chapter 7 particularly, 
was one of the things that changed my life. Absolutely changed my life. Because I was in the exact situation that Paul was describing. I was in the middle of that conflict between my spirit and my flesh. And every time my flesh won out, I accepted the thought because I didn't know any better. I accepted the thought that I was not really righteous. I came up with some kind of thinking that seems to be common, I guess. But just like in the Old Testament, God would lay the sins of the people on the sacrifice. And he would let that serve for their righteousness for a one-year period of time until next year the Day of Atonement came around and it had to be done again. Well, everything about the Old Testament, the picture of the Old Testament is incomplete. And you could well understand that it would have to be incomplete until Jesus came because nobody could be the type or the image of Jesus to the fullest. And so the Old Testament type, which was a means of God placing the sins of the people on the animals that were to be sacrificed. I got the idea that it must work in the same way. God just places righteousness on us. So he can say that we are, but he knows we're really not, just like we know we're really not. And so I was living most of my life under condemnation. My repenter was well developed, as well it would have to be, because I couldn't control my flesh. But when I saw that Paul had the same issues, when I saw that he had the same conflict, now his uh, errors of the flesh were probably different ones than me, but flesh is flesh. It doesn't matter what nature of the sin is, if it draws you away or pulls you away from fellowship with God, as far as the devil's concerned, mission accomplished. So here's Paul talking about the very same struggle that I was experiencing. And when I came to understand it, I'd read these verses before. I'd read through the, the seventh and eighth and uh, chapters of Romans. I'd read the whole book of Romans numerous times. But when I finally got it, it was life-changing. It had more of an impact on me and my spiritual development, even in faith, than any other thing. Let me back up and start in verse 14 again. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. That means Adam sold us out in the Garden of Eden. For that which I do, I allow not. The word allow is literally the word desire. That which I do, I don't desire to do. Now, he's talking about the difference between the man on the inside and the man on the outside. He's saying the man on the outside is dominating the man on the inside. Even though he knows the man on the inside should be in charge and should be, under, uh, should be in control of whatever's going on. But his complaint, Paul's dilemma, is that the man on the outside is winning. The flesh is winning out. For that which I do, I allow not, desire not. For what I would, that do I not. What the man on the inside wants to do, the man on the outside won't follow through. What the man on the inside does not desire is what the man on the outside winds up doing too. But what I hate, that's what I find myself doing, Paul says. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. In other words, he's saying, if I can't keep the outward man under control, then I'm no better than I would be under the law that I wouldn't, wasn't able to keep then either. He's saying, even though I'm supposed to be out from under the law, this conflict I'm having between the inside and the man on the inside and the man on the outside is dragging me down. It's just the same as, as if I was still under the law of Moses. And folks, I, I, you judge this for yourself, but it seems to me that's where most of the church world lives. As far as practical experience, what good is the new birth? That's in essence what Paul's saying here. He's saying if I can't control my body, if I can't keep, after having been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, if I can't keep from doing that which is wrong and do only that which my spirit wants to do which is right, what good is the new birth? I'm at the same place that I would have been if Jesus never came. That's what he's saying. 
But notice how he rationalizes it and comes to the understanding. He says in verse 17, now then it is no more I that does it. Now here's where the eyes and do it and all that kind of stuff can be kind of confusing if you don't understand where he's going. But now he's finally going to make a distinction between the inside man, the real him, the eternal part of man, and sin in the flesh. So he says, now it is no more I, the man on the inside that does it, but sin that dwelleth in me, me, in me, meaning in his flesh. There's no sin in your spirit or mine or Paul's either. And that's what he's coming to the realization about. Again, he's not coming to that realization at the time he's writing this. These are things that he had to deal with early on, just like all of us do. Now then, it is no more I, the man on the inside, that does these works that my heart despises. But instead, it's sin that dwells in my flesh. For I know that in me, here's its clarification, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. He's saying, my heart wants to do the right thing. The willingness to obey God from my spirit, that's always there. But I can't find the power to overcome the man, the outward man, and the sin in this flesh. Are you with me? Now, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that does it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. In other words, he's saying he comes to the realization it's always going to be this way. There's always going to be the man on the outside, the flesh, that's going to try to draw you away from what the man on the inside wants to do and knows his right to do. He calls it a law. This law, very specifically, would be your flesh trying to draw you in the, wrong, in the wrong way or in the wrong direction. That's a law that you cannot escape. It'll always be here. It'll always be present. But he's going to show you that you don't have to give in. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Notice he says in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He's saying, my heart always wants to do right. And who is his heart? It's the real him, the eternal part of man. Do you remember that the Bible says God looks on the heart? At the time when Samuel was going down to uh, Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel, he's going down there, and Samuel asks for the sons of Jesse to be brought in before him. The first one comes in. Man, he's a good-looking, tall kid. Just like Saul was when God chose him. And so Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointing is before me. And the Lord speaks back to him and said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And he didn't have the character qualifications to be the next king of Israel, to replace Saul. They'd have been in just as bad a spot as they were while Saul was king. And they kept going, bringing one after the other, until finally they got David in there, and Samuel anointed him to be king. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Now, there's a hidden meaning here, folks, that I think most people miss out on. But where the scripture says man looks on the outward appearance, that includes you and me too. And the devil wants nothing more than you looking at your outward appearance. The principle is the same whether it's you, me, or everybody else. We have a tendency, the natural tendency, the natural fallen state of man since sin entered this earth is to judge everything, including ourselves, by what we see on the outside. The problem with that is, and Paul will define it and identify it for us, the problem is, if you're doing that, then you're never going to realize that you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. I think most of us have the idea that spiritual growth 
is developing in these things so that we overcome sin. And the Bible doesn't define spiritual growth as that at all. Paul said, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members. Law meaning something that will always be around, ever present. I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. He's talking about the thought life. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, folks, he hits up on something here that's, that's easy to overlook, but it's the key that a whole thing turns on. He's talking about thoughts. He says, I see a law in my members warring against the law in my mind. And my flesh is winning. What's going to change Paul's condition to go from being able to conquer his flesh to being in bondage to sin in the flesh? That's the whole point that he's talking about this stuff. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Notice the the way he says that, the body of this death. In other words, the flesh, the sin that's in my flesh. Who's going to deliver me from that? Well, the answer is in verse 25. I thank God. That the deliverer from the body of this death is through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. This word mind is really talking about the heart, the man on the inside. With the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The last part of the verse says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That's something that the translators pull from verse 4 and put in verse 1. Now, there's, there's absolutely no explanation for why they would do that. You can't find another place in the Scripture where they took from one verse and added it to another. Not another place. And I don't think any of us can know for sure what their reasoning was. They left no notes. The best notes you're going to find is in, uh, in some Bibles, that, and it's not even in all of them, but some Bibles will have that phrase identified as not being supported by the original transcript, uh, manuscripts. Well, the reason it's not supported by the original manuscripts is because they pulled it out of verse 4 and put it in verse 1. The only thing that I can imagine to be the case is that when they are coming to this part of the translation, when they're translating from the Greek to the English, it was beyond anything they could accept. See, Paul just said in verse 25 of Romans chapter 7 that Jesus is the deliverer. He's the deliverer from the law of sin that's in the flesh. And since, and this is Paul's reasoning, not the translators, but the Paul's reasoning, Paul's understanding is since Jesus has finished the work and he's sitting down at the right hand of the Father, no work left to be done. That means righteousness has been accomplished. Deliverance has been provided. So he goes into verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, therefore, because Jesus is the deliverer, therefore, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. That means there's no place in any form whatsoever for works to be a part of the equation. That means spiritual growth and development cannot mean or cannot be brought about by works themselves. Translators must not be able to handle that. They must be looking at their lives and the lives of other people and say, well, okay, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who are living right. Now, that's the way we think because man looks on the outward appearance. We're always trying to find some outward sign to prove what the Bible says is true on the inside of us. But that's not what Paul said. Paul said, therefore, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you a very simple question, and that is this. 
Do you remember what Hebrews eleven six says pleases God? But without faith, it's impossible to please him. Hebrews eleven six says, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You can't please God without faith. So how are you going to please God in righteousness? It's going to have to be by faith. Paul is making a faith statement. Because notice Paul does not say, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus because Jesus has delivered us. So all that stuff that I told you about in Romans chapter 7, beginning about verse 14, forget all that. No, Paul's talking about a law. He's talking about the law of the, the, the spirit of God on the inside. The recreated man always wanting to do the right thing. Serving God with the inward man. But the ever-present law in the flesh. He's not wanting to know who's going to de- deliver me from the new birth. What he wants to know is, how can I make the new birth conquer the, outer, the out, uh, outward man? How does the new birth come to such a place in our lives so that our spirits control our bodies. Well, there's only one way that can happen, and that is to be delivered by Jesus. But to accept that you've been delivered by Jesus from this law, this ever-present law in your flesh, sin in your flesh, is going to have to be a faith proposition. It's going to have to be a, a faith proposition because you're going to have to confess and say certain things about you that the outward man and its activities, his activities, do not support So we're left daily with an unhappy dilemma. A choice, a decision, and a determination. Which one's right? What God said about righteousness or what we see about it in our flesh? Folks, may I suggest that looking at our flesh is a very poor revealer of what Jesus has done for us? There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul saying, even though in chapter 7 he's condemning himself about some of this stuff, and you would have to, uh, I'm making an assumption, but you would have to understand and have to expect that Paul had the same feelings about doing the wrong things because of his flesh as you and I do. So Paul is saying, all the time that the devil is trying to bring condemnation or I'm joining in and putting condemnation on myself because of the mistakes that I see my body making, the sin in my flesh dominating my spirit. I'm going to have to believe that I'm righteous even though I'm not looking like it through my actions and my behavior. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Paul may have been condemning himself in chapter 7, but Jesus wasn't. Paul may have been condemning himself, but it wasn't the Holy Ghost that was bringing condemnation. The Bible says, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. I think that most Christians are living under condemnation to the point where they don't have confidence in God. That's where I was. I was going to Bible school, wanted to learn everything I could about God, wanted to serve Him. I had no clue what that would mean. But I wanted to do everything that I could to serve God. I wanted to surrender every part, every bit every facet of my life to him. And whenever I was looking at myself and looking at the actions of my flesh, I had to conclude that I was a poor example of a Christian. I think Christians are too quick to condemn themselves. But that's a thought you're going to have to bring into captivity to the word too, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're commanded to do with everything, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, 4, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Stop right there. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, the law of righteousness. In other words, the law of eternal life. There's a lot of different ways we could define this. The law of the Holy Ghost living on the inside of you, which he couldn't do if he hadn't cleansed you from sin and and spiritual death. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Well, wasn't that true in chapter 7 too? Wasn't it also true during the events or descriptions that Paul gave us in chapter 7 of Romans 
when he couldn't control his flesh, the sin in his flesh was dominating his inward man. Wasn't that true then too? Hadn't he already been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus? Well, sure he had, but he wasn't living up to it. Now, here's what I mean when I say he wasn't living up to it. He hadn't renewed his mind to it. See, you don't live up to it by doing good things. Because if that were the case, then you'd be growing in righteousness according to your own works. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that righteousness can grow. It can't. When you make Jesus the Lord of your life, you're made completely righteous. Eternally righteous. Righteous in every respect. And that's how Jesus delivers you from the body of this death. But if we don't think in line with that, then we won't act in line with it. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after, well, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, according to the King James translation. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, because people couldn't keep the law. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Paul is saying that the part of the work of Jesus on the cross, part of the payment that his blood was required to cover was sin in the flesh. It doesn't change the fact that it's present. It doesn't change the fact that it may gain the upper hand in Paul's case, a lot more often than he wanted it to. But by that same token, ever is more than we want it to. Why are we delivered? Why is there no condemnation? Because Jesus' blood paid the price for sin in the flesh. He condemned once and for all, decreed a verdict of guilty upon sin in the flesh and removed it from us, from the man on the inside from the characteristics of redemption. He removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. Now that's where it becomes tricky because if it's removed from us, how can it still be present in our bodies? If it's been removed for us, if it's been paid for, if Jesus condemned sin in the flesh, by the way, condemning sin in the flesh is the first time in the history of mankind that God could judge sin apart from mankind. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the condemnation is on sin in the flesh, not on those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Let's keep going a little bit further. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, as a substitute for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit so who is the righteousness of God going to be revealed into or revealed by who is the righteousness of God going to affect every one of us Jesus condemned sin in the flesh so that righteousness could reign so that righteousness could reign and notice it will be fulfilled in those who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And then he describes what walking after the flesh is. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. To mind means to turn their attention to. But they that are after the spirit mind or turn their attention to the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is an enemy against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be subject to the law of God. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And there we go. We've gone full circle now. We're back to feeling condemned. That's not what he's saying. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If here's the one qualification for whether or not you're in the flesh or in the spirit. One thing, 
Not a list of 22 things. One thing determines where you are. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. And folks, that goes back to all those promises and all those prophecies in the Old Testament about cleansing you from your idols, taking the old stony heart out of you and putting in a heart, a tender heart, putting his own spirit on the inside of you. He's talking about being born again. You are not in the flesh if you're born again. You are not in the flesh if you're born again. If you stumble 500 times every day over the same sin, if you're born again, you're not in the flesh. Maybe an area of your flesh you need to work on. Develop a knowledge of the word, a greater knowledge of the word to help you overcome. But the single key, the, the, the single determining factor about whether you and I are in the flesh or in the spirit is whether or not we're born again. Remember, God looks on the heart. If your spirit has been made new, if you've received eternal life, you're not in the flesh. You're not in the flesh. Paul wrote to the Colossians, Colossians 2.8, I believe it is. He says, and you are complete in him. Who's he writing to? Writing to people that have struggles with their flesh too. Writing to people that are stumbling over sin because of the experience of sin that, they, that remains in our fleshly bodies. Every good thing that God said belongs to us. Every good thing that Jesus purchased for us through this death, burial, and resurrection, he purchased for people that would stumble over their flesh. Since that's true, I think those who have really committed their hearts and lives to the Lord should learn to do one simple thing, and that is give themselves a break. God already has, so why don't we? Think about that. If we're holding ourselves responsible for the actions of our flesh, and thinking that there's some flaw in us to not be able to overcome it or not have overcome it yet or whatever the case might be. Notice that God's already overlooked it. Whatever you and I are most concerned about not living up to the things written in the word that belongs to us, God's already overlooked them. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. What is the spirit of Christ? It's the Holy Ghost coming into us to make us a new creature. That new species of being. You remember in John 20, 20, when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the crucifixion, after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. What happened? They were born again. So the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Ghost that's given to us at the new birth. Now there's another work of the Holy Spirit. Those same people that Jesus breathed on in John chapter 20 and said, receive you the Holy Spirit or receive you the Spirit. He told them to wait in Jerusalem until they be endued with power from on high. Acts 1.8 tells us about Jesus' command to stay there and wait. Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost was poured out. And that began the supernatural ministry of the early day church so there's two works of the holy ghost spirit of christ is talking about the spirit of god that comes into you to to make you a new creature to impart eternal life to your spirit the baptism of the holy ghost is the second work of the holy ghost that empowers us for ministry notice he said you're not in the flesh but in the spirit if the spirit of christ dwells in you if you're saved You're not in the flesh. And if Christ be in you, verse 10, the body is dead because of sin. The body is dead because of sin. The body is dead because of sin. When is your body going to be dead? It's dead now. 
And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Do you see the contrast he's making? He's saying sin in the flesh has already been condemned, so your body's dead. Quit worrying about it. It's already dead. Now, folks, let me give you an example. In Roman times, uh, the Roman armies, and, and not just the armies, sometimes it was the magistrates, sometimes it was Caesar himself, one of the punishments that were used for people that were enemies of the state or I don't know if it was limited to just one, one classification of wrongdoing as far as the Roman government was concerned. But one of the things that they would do is that they would find a diseased body and they would tie it to the person that they were wanting to, to punish. And so for the rest of their life, They had to walk around with this dead body. Now the decay that was taking place in the dead body always went over into the healthy body and brought about an agonizing death for the person they were wanting to punish. I apologize for being a little bit gross in the example. But that's very much like what the Bible says about your body. That's very much what the Bible says about your body. Your body is dead because of sin. Well, you know, there's just not a lot of places that you can rightly go, or maybe I should say it this way. There's a lot of places that you won't be allowed to go by carrying in a dead body. The maitre d' is probably going to stop you at the door. Spiritually, we should shed our dead bodies. I carry around the body of death. And remember, that's what Paul called it. Over in Romans chapter 7. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I don't know if he was looking at it the same illustration. He certainly had knowledge of the way that the Romans tortured people. And this was one of the, the uh, well-known means. But it sure does fit, doesn't it? Jesus has already delivered you from this body of death. And if Christ be in you, again, verse 10, if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. You're going to have to decide which one you are. Are you a sinner saved by grace or are you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Can't be both. Now, it's very true of all of us that we used to be sinners who were saved by grace. But because we were saved by grace, we're now righteous. Even if we don't look any different than we did before we were saved by grace. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's the Holy Spirit. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you in other words he's saying if you'll accept the truth that you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus not by anything that you've done to curtail your flesh or whatever if you will understand that the deliverance of righteousness means that there's no condemnation to you because you're in the spirit meaning you've been born again you put spiritual things first your eternity is settled then that same Holy Spirit that dwells in you that the Old Testament said God would put in you That spirit is life on the inside of you, and he will quicken your mortal body. To quicken means to make alive. He's talking about making alive in the sense of delivering from sin in your daily life. He's saying there's a work of the Holy Ghost that will set you free from your bodies. He's saying there's a work of the Holy Ghost that will set you free from the conflict between your spirit and your body. There's a work of the Holy Spirit that will quicken your mortal body. He's not talking about your eternal body. He's talking about your mortal body, a work of the Holy Ghost that will deliver you, free you from the remnants of the law of sin and death. If you'll only accept it, you're righteous. Do you remember what Romans chapter 5 verse 17 says? 
For if, or since, by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. The abundance of grace is salvation. Righteousness is the result. Shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now we would have to accept that the reigning in life is very similar to the instruction that we read in, that, in uh, Isaiah 54 verse 17. The righteousness, our righteousness which is of God which is intended to bring us to a place of authority. But if the devil can keep us thinking that we've not been made righteous or that something's lacking in us, not God's fault, we're just messed up, then he can keep you from reigning. And I'll say it again. I think I've said it a couple of times already, but I'll say it again. In my opinion, a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding about righteousness is the number one thing that keeps us from walking in this earth as joint heirs with Christ. Well, we can change that. We can change that. In this same letter that Paul wrote to the, to the Romans, remember he comes to chapter 12, or what's been designated as chapter 12. He didn't write in chapter and verse. Where he gives instructions on how to defeat the conflict between your body and your spirit. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Verse 3 tells us why. That you may know, literally determined by experience, that you may know what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. In other words, he's talking about experiencing the will of God. Now, God doesn't have three wills. Well, there's a good will, and there's an acceptable will, and there's a perfect will. I don't doubt in any, any form whatsoever that God has to settle for less than his perfect will in many people's lives, many of the lives of his children. But God is only, only has one will. It's good, acceptable, and perfect. And he's saying, Paul is saying, the same guy that struggled with his flesh, just like you and me. Paul is writing to the church saying the transforming can and will take place if you'll learn to think right. If you'll learn to think in line with the word. That's what he did concerning righteousness that brought him victory over his flesh and the sin that was in his flesh. He talked about the law that warred against his mind. He talked about his thought life and how it works there. So what does he do? Step number one, Paul accepted that God didn't condemn him for his struggle. Step number two, Paul understood that righteousness was his. He'd been made righteous, just like you and I have, through Jesus becoming our Lord and Savior, in spite of the actions of our flesh. Step number three. Paul came to the understanding since the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free. Then we should be able, by the power of God, the same spirit that quickens our mortal bodies, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Well, in that power, that spirit, that life will enable us to present our bodies unto God and change our thinking. And every bit of that has to be done by faith. Every bit of it has to be done by faith. Every part of it is available to us because of what Jesus did and only because of what Jesus did. It's not a matter of works. We can't even say, well, we've renewed our mind more than the other guy. So look how much better we are. Because the same thing that's true for us is true for them too. Now, I don't think Paul ever came to the place where he enjoyed sin. Do you? I don't think Paul ever came to the place where he stopped resenting when his body would do the wrong thing. 
But you've got to understand that Jesus gave him the tools to conquer. Paul didn't get this out of Brother Newell's book. He got this as revelation from the Holy Ghost. Can you imagine Paul, who's got the same training as the the high priest, the Jewish high priest. He knows all the scriptures, all the promises. He knows everything in the law and the prophets about what God said he would do concerning righteousness, his plan of righteousness. The Old Testament talks about righteousness 200 times. Some of them is talking about God's righteousness. Some of it is talking about his plan for man to be righteous. 200 times. And Paul knows every place that's there. He knows that righteousness was God's plan, his purpose for the Messiah, which was fulfilled in Jesus. And somehow the guy that could not find the strength, the spiritual strength to, content, to tame his body, the sin in his flesh, now comes to the place where he said, if you'll present your body to, to Jesus or unto God, which is your spiritual service. God bought your spirit and your body with a price. The same price was his blood. And you can be transformed by learning to think right according to the word. And that thinking right will bring right actions. It will bring a right course and direction for our lives. It will put us in a place where we experience God's will every time. Paul talking about determining by experience the perfect, good and acceptable and perfect will of God certainly leads us to think that he came to that place himself, doesn't it? And by the Holy Ghost, who told him the steps to take, leaves us a record of it too. Folks, God wants us to reign in righteousness. He wants us To be so confident of who we are in him. Which has nothing to do with us. And everything to do with him. But coming to the knowledge and the realization of who we are in Christ. To take authority over and stand against any and every weapon that comes against us. Knowing that not one of them will prosper against us. What a plan of redemption we have. By nature, God has created us to win every time over the devil. By nature. The nature of the new birth. I'm not talking about physical nature. But by nature of his redemptive plan. And what happens when we are born again. He's made us to win every time. Every time. And told us how to do it. Let's all stand. Let's make a couple of confessions. What do you say? Say this after me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus has delivered me from the law of sin and death. And now the law of the spirit of life indwells me. The Holy Spirit himself dwells in me. Who quickens my mortal body. Who opens the doors for me to walk in righteousness and walk in victory. No weapon formed against me shall ever prosper because I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. If our hearts ever catch up with that being the truth, we'll float in and out of these places. Won't have to walk. Let's lift our hands and thank you for his goodness. Father, thank you for who you've made us to be. Thank you, Lord, that there is no condemnation to any one of us, no matter what we've done, no matter when it happened, no matter how many times it's occurred. There is no condemnation to us. You said so. We're dominated by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And it brings us into victory every time. We've been made worthy by the blood of the Lamb. We've been made eternally worthy by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father. 
because you didn't hold back your only son, you won't hold back anything else. But instead, even as your word says, all things are Christ's and we are his. So all things are of him. All things are ours. We are joint heirs with Jesus the righteous. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, that you put all things under our feet. Thank you that the spirit of life, the very Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is quickening our mortal bodies. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Well, how many of you are righteous? Every one of us. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for being with us.